Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, this morning. If you have your Bibles, we please turn there. We will stand in a moment and read verses 5 through 11. And uh, if you're watching online and you are able, why don't you stand with us for the reading of God's Word? Please stand. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, then indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Please be seated. Hypocrites versus heaven. Uh, The hypocrite picks a fight with God. You've heard unbelievers say, I don't want to go to church, there are hypocrites there. At least we're honest enough to admit it. Uh, And that's not the whole story anyway. Um, A little bit of introduction to this subject and this chapter. Romans 1 and 2, the first two chapters of Romans, give us the bleak state of man. Paul is laying out the depravity in the Gentile and in the Jew alike. By the third chapter, he begins to take us out of the darkness and give us the solutions of Christ. It's necessary background for all of us, these first two chapters. In that first chapter of Romans, and now remember when Paul wrote this letter, there were not chapter and verse divisions. He just wrote the letter as we would get a letter. Uh, But they are significant nonetheless. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 are proper Uh, make a proper distinction between those without a Bible and those with a Bible. It is as though in chapter 1, Paul was looking out of the window at Corinth, that ancient decadent city it was at that time, as though he were looking out the window and looking at the depraved behavior of Gentile heathens. Then he comes to chapter 2, and it is as though he's looking in a window of a synagogue. And there, looking at the Jews, not all of them, but the ones in that synagogue who were willfully disobedient to their own scripture. And so you you get, what you end up with is the guilty are the guilty, regardless of their ethnicity. You have people that have no Bibles, and they are guilty, and you have people with Bibles, and they they have guilt also. And we'll be... Um, opening that up the next few Sundays as we go through Romans, because he's got a lot to say in the next section about those who have never heard the gospel. So who are the people of chapter 1, verses 18 through 32? Again, guilty people without a Bible. 
heathen Gentiles. Who are these people? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, pretty much the whole chapter, they are the guilty people with a Bible. The hypocritical ones in this particular sense. So, to point this out one more time, regardless of ethnicity, guilt of depravity or hypocrisy is guilt before God nonetheless. All men are sinners, and all sin has to be dealt with in one way or another. We have a say-so in this matter, and the outcome can be glorious, or we can turn against God and have a disastrous outcome. So, we ask ourselves, am I guilty? Am I guilty of a hypocrisy or depravity with or with my Bible, and I'm not taking it before the Lord? Well, that's hopefully what we're going to talk about. Now, those who scoff at the Scripture cannot now charge God with not dealing with hypocrisy in church, hypocrisy outside of church. We've heard the people, you know, uh, criticize. uh, That's why I'm not a Christian, because of you Christians. Well, God deals with those Christians who you are accusing of, or allegedly, of being not Christian. However, that is what kept me from Christ. And in his mercy, of course, he grabbed hold of me. And I think that highlights for us the importance of a good witness before unbelievers. I I, I never ran into an unbeliever that wanted me to be perfect as a Christian. They just wanted me to be a straight shooter. And uh, that's not too difficult to do. And uh, that will bring much fruit. Anyway, when we get to the 17th verse of this second chapter... Paul will identify the frauds in Christianity, and of course he's saying God sees them and he will deal with them. And every time we come across that word judgment, it's a word that means God's going to deal with this. Um, So, as with Israel, so it is with the professed Christian. That's where we end up with this whole thing. Uh, ironically, this Roman letter can be very confusing. Now, here's the irony. At the same time, unmistakably clear. There are little details and incidentals that you might be a little foggy on, but you get the point. And uh, you can't lose that. That is critical. And this is going to happen throughout the letter. And there's some reason for this that um, I'll get to as we begin to move through the verses. But God cannot be fooled. That is part of Paul's message and is summed up in this way in the third chapter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is no exception. And sin uh, goes far beyond doing wrong to someone or to yourself. The foundation of sin is you've wronged God. And, uh, you know, if you want, how convenient. Oh, there is no God. I can, you know, write my own rules. Uh, yeah, you wish, and uh, that's, of course, as the Bible teaches, very foolish. Well, with that very brief introduction, if I must say, uh, we go to the first verse. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, 
you got to get this in your head. It's sort of like with with uh, First John. In his first letter, if you do not understand that he is dealing with Gnosticism, you're going to get all confused. In Romans, if you don't understand that Paul is using a question-answer format, you're going to get confused. And he is doing this for good reason. He's, he begins, he, he, he doesn't got to his first question yet, but what is happening here is he's having a conversation with himself in front of everybody. And by doing that, he's going to expose and criticize those guilty in this conversation. It is quite brilliant. It is a, a rhetorical device that is not new to humanity. It is, it is practiced elsewhere to sort of argue before a, an audience with a question-answer. Well, who do you think you are? Well, I'll tell you who I am. Well, what does that mean? See, that kind of a thing is happening here in this first chapter. And what this uh, hypothetical conversation also does is it goes against the stunts that people will try to pull on God, on themselves, and on others. So he's exposing this. And if you're going to read this honestly, you're going to see yourself somewhere in there if you have this particular guilt. In fact, he uses this quite often in Romans. In chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 9. So when he says, shall we thus sin that uh, you know, good may come? That's the question. Then he gives the answer. Next verse. Certainly not. But it's done its work. It has put the reader on alert. Well, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to sin so God can show grace? Of course not. Sin is a killer. And, and this is what's going on here. If you lose this understanding in Romans, you're going to get tangled up in a lot of places, especially when you get to chapters nine, uh, chapter 9, and you're not understanding what Paul is doing. Anyway, he's moving from the flagrant sins of chapter 1 to the fraudulent sins of those here in chapter 2. From those eager to engage in sin in chapter 1 to those entitling themselves to be an exception from judgment for sin. The cover-up. The, in, in, in his day and in this second chapter, he's essentially focusing on the Jews who felt that their ethnicity protected them from obeying God's word. Well, I'm a Jew. I'm okay. And that would extend to Gentiles who became uh, Jewish as far as their religion, came into Judaism. No matter how you do your sin, you are busted. That's the idea. Chapters 1 and 2. Now, when we get to verse 5, he indicates that these are not people struggling with sin, but those ignoring sin. It's a big deal. We've made that point, the difference between practicing sin and being a prisoner of sin. We made that point last chapter. So any Jewish person listening to this Jewish apostle and agreeing with his attack on the sins of the Gentile in chapter 1 are now going to have to ask themselves, do they agree with it on them? If they're listening to Paul, uh, his diatribe against the sins in chapter 1, and saying, yes, get them, Paul. Then Paul turns his guns and says, what about you? 
What about some of these things? Because I know you're doing them. I've looked in the window. Sort of Ezekiel chapter 8, you know, God tells Ezekiel, go look in the hole in the wall, see what they're doing in the temple. Well, uh, this is going to get uh, interesting when we connect it to Amos in one second, but coming back to verse 1, therefore you are inexcusable. This is a directed to those that, again, are guilty of the coming charges that he's going to lay out. Equally acceptable to, uh, or applicable to anyone who has this behavior, Jew or, or not. Christian, unbeliever, Jew, if you're guilty of this, then you've you got to deal with it. The true Christian will deal with it. Now, the referent, you, therefore, you. Um, initially, it might be am- ambiguous. Well, who is he talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 17 that he's addressing this to the Jews. He's making that distinction from chapter 1. But he waits a while to get there. It, so, you know, you got to study this letter to keep, keep up with him. He's all over the place. But again, he makes his key points. They're unmistakable. And uh, so he's, he's calling out the churchgoers of, of his day. Uh, and he's saying, you're inexcusable. Just as in chapter 1... The Gentiles were inexcusable, who were pretending that there was no God or that they could create their own. Just as Paul called called them out, he's calling these guys out. Synagogue-going Jews are without excuse, since they do the same things that they condemn in others and think that they are above accountability. Uh, So, (laughs) this is the interesting part. I don't know if he does this on purpose or not. But it it is the same tactic in the end. Amos the prophet, 700 years earlier, wrote his prophecies. And he starts out his first chapter, Woe to you in Damascus. Woe to you in Gaza. Woe to you in Tyre. And the Jews were loving it. Yeah, you get them, Paul. Messing with us. Those are our enemies. Uncircumcised Philistines and whatever else they were. And then, in the second chapter of Amos, he says, Woe to you, Judah. And Israel, now he really doesn't use the word woe, but he is, he's pronouncing the woes on them. And then, you know, they didn't like that. They hated that prophet for that. How dare you? We're covenant people. You get Christians like this. I'm a Christian. I give my life to Christ. I do anything I want. They won't say that. But they sure will behave that way when you, when you bust them on some big sin and you tell them, hey, you've got to be held accountable for this. Well, you know, who are you to tell me, you know, I'll, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the one that busted you. So, a- anyway, it's, it, it is effective. Um, that how Amos did it, and they wanted him to go away, and he didn't. We have his writings to this day. Um, this, um, account, this idea of accountability is what guilty people do not want to be subject to. And so, whether you are in or out of a synagogue, in or out of a church... If you are smug and self-impressed and self-righteous, if you classify yourself as above it all, an elitist, you're in big trouble with God. Uh, You might pull it off with men. You can wear that mask around them all you want. But God is not fooled by hypocrisy. He never is fooled by anything. And so he further addresses this. Oh man, whoever you are who judge. Now that about includes everybody. Whoever you are. So you're not going to be able to say, oh, Paul, you're being a racist against your people or, or a Gentile. You're not. This is a level playing field. And it is vital uh, 
how many people do you, as you read some of the scripture, how many people do you say, boy, I wish, you know, so-and-so would read this because they're messed up like I'm reading here. Fortunately, I have no problems. I'm all good. Uh, yeah, we, we know that. But the big difference between the Christian that struggles and the non-Christian is that we struggle. And even if they struggle against some flawed behavior, they're not doing it for Christ. They're doing it for themselves. Uh, we, hopefully, are doing both. So, um, he makes it clear, oh man, whoever you are, that uh, whether you're in chapter 1 or chapter 2, that's yeah, enough to be guilty against God. Sinners must have an advocate. That's the part of the solution. If they're going to recover from distancing, distancing themselves from God through sin, they're going to have to have somebody that looks out for them. Uh, I don't know. I, I would like to think that everybody at some point in life, as you go forward, if you experience any degree of success, you've had somebody help you out. Some um, hook. Somebody who was above you in the right position, put a word in for you, opened a door for you, gave you, gave you a head start. That's a good thing. doesn't mean you're less. It means that you're just good people in the world, and, and we're supposed, uh, good people as people go, uh, and we're supposed to pass that, that on. I know I've benefited in a lot of areas in my life from somebody just looking out for me, taking a liking to me. <laughs> How could they not? But anyway... We Christians, we have an advocate. And as soon as I bring that word up, in the context of rescuing somebody, I think most Christians will think of the verse I'm about to read. John, writing to the Christians, said, My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. There's sin is out there. This is writing to Christians. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. It's sort of, and don't you forget it. And we love this. The same advocate has made the Holy Spirit available to us to resist sin. Not only to be forgiven from sin. And uh, the hypocrites that he's talking about here in this chapter, and the depraved in the last chapter, they had no intention on correcting their behavior in the presence of God. So Paul, addressing hypocritical accusers of others, those who judge inappropriately, and uh, then he, of course, there is Jesus who allows honest, honest judgment of sin in others. You know, you've heard somebody say, don't judge me while they're robbing a bank. I mean, mean, that's just my example in the extreme. But maybe they've committed some blatant sin. And you're holding them accountable. And they're going to try to pull that don't judge me card. Well, tear it out. It doesn't work. John chapter 7. And for we Christians, what the Bible says means everything. Thus the cross references. For you non-Christians, you got other problems too. If you're rejecting the verse references and the strength of them, you you got some serious problems with God. Uh, And they can be fixed before the clock runs out. But Jesus said this about judging. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So they like to take the verse in Matthew, you know, judge not. Oh, see, you can't do it. No, that's not, you're out of context. 
Because in verse chapter 7, he says, judge with righteous judgment. Without proper judgment, how could you ever determine whether a person is a false prophet or not? Because all you have to say is, you can't judge me. But I can, and I will. Now, I won't be, it won't be gleeful. Well, on the outside, it's not supposed to be. <laughs> but there is some schadenfreude. There is some delight in seeing somebody dealt with. Good, I'm glad he got a ticket. But Christ says, look, don't be getting into that. That's a bad place for you to go. It's carnal. Anyhow, John chapter 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Judge them. Whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How are we ever going to put an end to this? How are we ever going to protect ourselves if we do not hold people accountability to their confession of faith? You say you're a Christian and you think you can go out there and flatten people's tires or something? Uh, and, get, and just like it's okay and I, no one can say anything? Well, you're delusional. Um, that's the short of it. Well, we got that. And he continues here. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. Yourself, singular. Well, if someone has ample knowledge to judge others, they should also have ample knowledge to admit their own wrongs, see that their own uh, faults are before God, that they are under the same standard. So if you're going to criticize someone else, remember that uh, there's a standard on you also. Now, of course... I can't stress this enough. We're, we're not trying to do away with accountability in others. We're just trying not to let it get out of hand. Christ has not committed his church to a lynch mob. We are to be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. We are to love. We are to look out for each other. Uh, but if you take accountability away, we can't look out for each other. In fact, we're doing the devil's work. We're enabling sin to just go unchecked. The religious hypocrite is a walking, talking, double standard. And that's what God is trying to deal with. Because we, we, we hate when we see this in the mainstream media. They can't help it. Every time they open their mouths, it's a lie. Even when they're telling the truth, they're lying. Just like the devil. Uh, really, they're always up to something. So Because their heart is wrong. Well, Christ wants to fight these things because the identical codes are in all of us. We can be just as rotten as anybody else. And to fight this, we have these scriptures before us that address it. So he continues, for you who judge practice the same thing. So while condemning failure in others, are you impenitent before God about your own sins? Is there this proliferation of personal sin which just goes on and nobody checks it? It just keeps spreading? Matthew 23, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, and he's speaking about the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the rabbis of his day, Christ speaking, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. There's your hypocrites for you. There's the double standard, and Christ came against it, and they hated him for this. And they will hate you for this also. Some will. How dare you? And they'll luck to be petty and pull up something that you've done, some little petty thing. Oh, yeah, well, you didn't pay that parking ticket. <laughs> something stupid like that. Which you say, um, 
So, let's talk about you right now. You know, we, we understand people want to get the change of subject as best they can. Jehovah Witnesses are very good at that. If you hold their feet to the fire, who do you say Jesus is? They'll try to get out of that question once you start picking their theology apart and distract you. Oh, yeah, what about blood transfusion? We're well, going to need one in a minute if you don't get off my property. Anyhow, uh, coming, uh, when we get to chapter 14, Paul's going to warn the Gentiles to not pass judgment on the Jews who are trying to follow a strict, uh, follow their strict dietary customs. You know, when Christ gave freedom to the church to eat whatever they want, the Jews, many of them said, oh, that's good, I just can't do that. I'm just not going to eat, you know, possum. And, and so whatever it is, yeah, because pork is an easy one, right? But, uh, you know, and, and they have every right. You have every right to say, I'm going to eat that and I'm not going to eat that. What you don't have a right to do is say is, God condemns eating this. That's when you start, uh, that's when you're wrong. Well, Paul had to deal with that in the 14th chapter because he knew this was happening throughout the, the Gentile world where the Christians and Gentiles were worshiping together. And he was saying, don't go judging those Jews. And Jews, don't you go judging them. You know, he's just like a, a father putting out all these brush fires. That if those brush fires aren't putting out the squabbling of the siblings, they'll turn into to prairie fires. They'll, they'll be a big deal. Uh, whenever um, someone stands on moral superiority, they are standing on thin ice. You know, we have an old saying, you living in the glass house, don't throw stones. And make sure you have your clothes on all the time, too. <laughs> so, why would anyone with a Bible behave so blatantly phony? Why? Well, the flesh is one reason, and a false conversion can be another reason. You have this acquaintance with the things of the Bible, but you have no relationship with the God of the Bible. There are people that know a lot about the Bible, but they're not walking with the God of the Bible. Maybe they're, you know, born in a Christian home. You know, one of the hardest jobs, maybe, and I say this so if you come across them, one of the hardest roles in the church is the child of the pastor. And I've met many of them in my own home. That's a joke. <laughs> but outside my home. And a lot of times they're, they're pretty beat up in their theology, in their walk with Christ. They're all over the place. And if I guess if you at a young age were put under their kind of magnifying glass, if you were held to a higher standard in the home because you have come into the assembly that's supposed to love you and, and be a blessing and you're finding people are just criticizing you and turning on you, criticizing your parents often, uh, it could be a tough route for a kid. Well, I can't change all the evils of the world, but I can change how I handle these things when I come across someone who was a pastor's child. Even into their latter years, they could be 50, 60 years old and you, years old and you detect issues there. Uh, you know, and then, then they have other issues. You know, how are they going to sit under another man? Another man's preaching if they've, you know, enjoyed their parent, their father preaching from the pulpit for their childhood. Then they've got to deal with that in life. So there's a lot of things. It's like if, if you find a good church, as you all have, um, and, and then, you know, you find yourself, you, have to, you move away, and now you're looking for another church. It's very difficult because you, you want the church you're in now to be like the one you 
you enjoyed wherever you came from. Well, that's understandable. It's just not the reality all the time. The reality is, is you have to become a new wineskin. Uh, now, you don't have to become a new something else, but you do have to be flexible. And, uh, you know, not major in the minors. This is uh, an accumulation of knowledge over the decades of pastoral ministry, and I'm not charging you for this. This one's on the house. So, we come back to the what, what spawned this thing is, how can someone have a Bible and behave so be such a blatant phony? Well, there are a lot of reasons why. That does not excuse them. It just may enlist us to contribute to the solution. And maybe you need to tell some pastor's child that are in their latter years, you know, part of your problem is you haven't become a new wineskin. And you've been bursting wherever you go. Maybe that's part of the problem. Anyway, um, many Jews felt that their relationship to Abraham and the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament, they felt because they were Jews, they were excused. That they could look down on the Gentiles and still go about their own sins. The very sins they were hating on the Gentiles. We just saw this in the Gospels. The conniving, the lying, the murder of Jesus Christ by the religious leaders at the top of their pyramid. And yet they smugly just went on about their business afterward. So let's be real about this. It does happen, and it happens often enough. Verse 2, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So he's, he's bringing them back. He says, come on, you know, there's a judgment of God, there is a scripture, and it, it, it's not a philosophy. Judgment is not a philosophy. It is a fact. And just be on the right side. And it really isn't that hard to be on the right side of God's judgment because he's done all the heavy lifting on Calvary, on the cross. What is the first sin judged in the New Testament church? Not the New Testament. The New Testament church, when the church was birthed, it was lying. Lying was the first sin publicly judged. Lying to the Holy Spirit, to a pastor, and in church. All three of those. Well, it caused the, the couple that lied, it caused them to leave the church. <laughs> and the planet. And you say, man, that was a harsh judgment. Yep, it was. And that's the point. Uh, you, you now, God doesn't say deal with that. He says, think about that. Zephaniah, the prophet. You know, these prophets, I love reading them. Because, you know, who, who reads Zephaniah? I do. Uh, and they have so many gems because it's God. He says, Yahweh is righteous in her midst, in the midst of Israel, in her Jerusalem. He's, he's righteous. So we've got to remember that when we talk about judgment. God is righteous. He continues, he will do no unrighteousness. Do you believe that? You know, some people are so bitter at God for allowing a disaster in their life that they can't get past it. And so the devil has a field day with that. You're just handing the devil, here's the recipe. Here's, here's, all, here's my passcode to keep me a hypocrite or whatever it is. I'm going to hand this to you. And it's, it's wrapped in bitterness at God. You, the other guy got the job. I didn't get it. The other guy this. The other person's marriage is wonderful. Mine's is not. And on and on and on it goes. The bottom line, we are to stand our ground for Christ. Our faith is our bean field. 
And we ought to stand and guard that bean field with the sword of God as though it were attached to our hand. And if you don't, the consequences can be uglier than what they ever should have been. You've got to believe this by faith. It's not just an intellectual decision or an emotional decision. It has to be an act of the will. The heart has got to get its skin in the game and understand. That's the charge Satan had against Job. You put his skin in the game and he won't follow you anymore. Hurt him. Let me get my hands on him and he'll curse you. And Satan was proven wrong because he's not. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. He is a created, fallen being. He wasn't created that way, but he is that way now. Well, Zephaniah, Yahweh is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. You've got to look for that sometimes. He never fails. Do you believe that? Love never fails. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. True agape love does not fail. People may fail, but the love does not. What about the righteous just the judgment and justice of God? Does that fail? It says here, he never fails. And then he adds, but the unjust... They have no shame. They go about the, doing what they want to do. And this irritated the psalmist in Psalm 73. You know, I see these people. The kids do well. They go to the best schools, got the best clothes, they eat the best food. Here I am doing the righteous thing and we're struggling over here. And then I went into the house of the Lord. And it all became clear. There's more to this life than this life. So keeping the major things the major things. It's so, the, flesh will, the flesh will flip that around so quickly on you, you won't know what happened. You will take a minor thing. You know, I'm not going back to that church anymore. Can you believe they didn't have skim milk? I can't believe anybody has skim milk. But I mean, those petty things. I'm making up one, but, but there are real ones. I could throw those out, but I might hit somebody or get a family member. And I don't, and that's not my intention. Though I could enjoy it, right? No, I could not because there's nothing cute about it. Uh, and I've got my own things. You've never seen them. Um, and that's just because. Anyway, coming back to the, I finished my Zephaniah quote. To the true believer, the Bible means everything. Jesus is the personification of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's more to him. He's not only the truth, there's more to him. And that's why we do the cross-references again, because we value Scripture. But the unbeliever is too busy scoffing at Scripture for it to penetrate. It's like the seed sown on the wayside. They don't get into the soil where they can do what they're supposed to do because their heart is too hard and they like it that way. I believe many people want Jesus to be a fraud. Many people want the Bible to be wrong. They want to keep their lifestyle at any cost. And it's going to cost. And they can't afford it. And when they get to hell, they're going to find out they're not dressed for it. But it's too late. Well, he says, against those who practice such things. Well, God punishes evil and rewards good. That's not how, I mean, not in the sense of salvation, but ultimately he does reward and he does punish. That's a basic fact. And uh, there are those that um, practice without a care. And then there are those that do and they want out. And we covered that in last, I believe, last session, somewhere in chapter one. My last session, I believe, we made the distinction between practicing sin and participating in sin. There's a great distinction between the two. And it is the heart. It comes down to the heart. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, 
and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. Well, here is his first question. There are over 80 of them <laughs> in, uh, in his, this letter. Um, now, you know, I had that in my notes from years ago, and I forgot to check it. But I'm sure it's right. And if it's wrong, I don't want to hear it. No. <laughs> no I, I would like you to. But it costs $5 to submit the. You have to. So the last one is in chapter 14 was the last question. But here's one of his questions. And so if you're listening to, if he were up on a platform uh, giving a presentation and he's having this, you know, uh, a monologue or soliloquy, then you, you, you understand it. Well, when you come to it in writing and he doesn't tell you what's going on, you might miss it. He says uh, here, And do you think, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, the hypocrite must be telling himself that. What is the hypocrite? Well, they're wearing a mask. A hypocrite is an actor. And not only a, more than a kabuki actor, it's men and women involved, not just men. And just because you can criticize others does not mean you're innocent. Nor does it mean you're right. Sometimes you can be right, but it doesn't mean you're innocent or better. And if you see sin in another, then you admit what sin is. If you can identify it in someone else, then you know what it is. So how can anyone honestly miss their own sins? I don't think anybody can. Uh, you may, I've come across people that have told me, I, I don't sin because they, they, and they say they're Christians. And they just, what a Goitian knot their doctrine is. It's because they misunderstand what John talks about when he says Christians don't sin. They, they think that, that we really don't sin. I can prove that in two seconds, that, that it's you sin. <laughs> so, or better, better, just ask their spouse, hey, he says he doesn't sin. What do you think about that? And don't lie. That'll be a sin. So, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So, if you put 3 and 4 together, the question, and then, or do you not know, then you, you get a little better idea, understanding of how this question format is working for him. So, he says, or do you esteem the rich... The, do you esteem the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Well, that's a question that has to be answered. Do you dismiss it? But he has a stronger word. Do you despise? Do you despise that God is good? Do you despise that he's patient and puts up with your junk? Yeah, but it's not about me. I'm, just, I'm angry because he's putting up with people I don't like. There's no way to get around it. You're guilty. You disesteem God. That's how what a beast does. You know, that saying, a bull in a china shop. The bull has no value on the china. They're going to wreck the whole place, according to that illustration. Well, we're not animals. We are created in the image of God. And we have suffered a nasty fall through sin. Peter writes about those who stubbornly adhere to uh, being the Antichrist they want to be, Second Peter 2. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. He's not saying yippee. 
He's pointing out to the Christians, there are people like this. This is a real thing. There's no getting away from it. What are we going to do about it? In 2 Peter, he's talking about the false prophets that have invaded the church. And he's telling the Christians to get them out so that we can be useful to Christ. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a Jew and a Gentile, as a people, joined hands at Calvary and they crucified the Son of God. Who crucified Jesus? I did. Who crucified the Christ? You did. Sinners caused the need for that. Because if he did not come and die on that cross, your sins would stay on you. It's sort of like what would have happened to Adam and Eve had they had that tree of life. Uh, They would have lived forever in a sinful state. But God was having none of that. He put an angel there to keep them from that tree. And he's put the cross there for all of us, made from a tree, to come to him. And so that act of crucifixion, talking about the long-suffering and forbearance of God and his goodness, that act of crucifying Christ called for the unleashing of heaven's weaponized armies, the angels in heaven, to outpour a deserved wrath. Instead, we find Jesus restraining himself and telling Peter, that's not how we do it, Peter. Put the sword away. And so, for 2,000 years, the riches of his goodness, divine forbearance and long-suffering, and he has withheld the fury of his wrath. John said, uh, and we beheld his glory as, a, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. And so what does God do instead of wiping everybody out? He offers them forgiveness through his son. And he deputizes his people, the church, to carry that message to lost people. He sticks out his nail-scarred hand and he offers companionship. And the world scoffs and expects to be let off the hook of judgment because they make may be successful in this life or independent in this life. They think they're going to be that way when they stand at the judgment seat. A judgment seat that they don't don't even believe exists, many of them. And so people who abuse this feature of God's character, his patience, his long-suffering, his goodness, they are storing up for themselves wrath, as verse 5 will say. But before we get back to that, we finish here in verse 4, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Oh man, led me to repentance. When I realize that Jesus is everything that he says he is, and that he was kind enough to point it out to me himself, it was all goodness. Couldn't stop weeping over it. And you know, people who know their guilt recoil, recoil, or waste the solution. One more time. The longer you put off coming to Christ, the better at putting off coming to Christ you will be. Today, if you harden not your heart, the Bible lays these lessons out. It's not fooling around with you because the devil's not fooling around with you. Your flesh is not fooling around with you. Your, your own carnality, it will never die a natural death. You will not wake up one morning and say, huh, I'm not carnal anymore. Unless you're in heaven. Unless you wake up dead. Then you got a chance. But for now, it's going to be this uh, war of the flesh versus the spirit. 
And so the purpose behind God's display of goodness and forbearance, long-suffering, which means it hurts him too, is giving us space to repent. That's why. Why doesn't God just come end it all? Because he, he knows there's still people to be had, to be saved. Repentance is a change in mindset about sin, about self, and about God altogether. That's what saving repentance is. You realize that you are wrong, and you are on the wrong flight. The flight you were on was not predestined to heaven, it was predestined to hell. So you got off that flight. You got on the other one. And now you're predestined to go to heaven. That's repentance. Verse 5 now. But in accordance with your hardness. i got to speed up, don't I? We've got to get to chapter 11. Okay, New York mode kicking in. You'll have to slow down the CD. To <laughs> but in, I'm kidding. But in accordance with your hardness. And your impenitent heart. You are treasuring up for yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Stubbornness before God has never served man well. Not one time. One of the great examples is Balaam. Balaam was determined to do wrong. And God said, listen, I'm going to even make an animal talk, if that's what it's going to take, Mr. Doolittle. And maybe that will stop you. And it did not. You would think something like that would register. I mean... What would you do if you were on your way to sin and your dog said, what are you doing? I mean, it would just change everything. But Balaam was blind, was drunk with, Balak has got more gold than I can shake a stick at, and I'm going to get me hands on it. And the wee prophet went his way. Well, some, being resent, some resent being told man's way is never good enough for God. Man's way is never God's way. There is God's way, and there is man's way, and there's no mixing of the two. There is male, and there is female, and there's no other category. So, we just got to get that. That's been a commercial from those of you who adhere to truth. Well, uh, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. Notice the choice of words. You're stockpiling wrath. You're hoarding wrath. You're treasuring it. That's the whole voice of the God. And for in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's an Old Testament expression, the day of wrath, synonymous with the day of Yahweh. In the New Testament, it's applied to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.8 and Philippians 1.6, there's the day of Christ. Same thing. Amos chapter 5, woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. For what good is that day of Yahweh to you? It will be darkness and not light. It is not day. It, is it not the day of the Lord's darkness and not light? Is it not very dark and no brightness in it? So there's Amos telling the guilty Jews in the northern kingdom who was into idolatry. You want the day of the Lord? You want to play these little prophet games, Bible verse games? Let me tell you, it's not going to serve you well. The day of the Lord is the day of your judgment. And this, it's all dark. None of it's good. But they scoffed at him nonetheless. Anyway, verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds? So judgment is up close and it is personal. But for the Christian, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Part of that joy is 
Okay, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But it's also going to be, yeah, you were not a doofus. You figured it out. I know there are those, well, man's too depraved to figure it out. Look, I don't agree with that. I don't know, and it's nowhere in the Bible that tells me you're too depraved to receive an invitation by God. God says, whoever wills, you come. I believe that. And I'm going with that one. Anyway, verse 7 Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Of course, he's not giving uh, the recipe for salvation. He's giving a description of what happens once salvation is, uh, uh, is, is received. Christians are scheduled, when they come to Christ, you are scheduled to have this uh, patient continuance in doing good, seeking glory, honor, and immor- immorality. Immortality. So, not immorality. That's another sermon. Just checking. No, I'm not. I'm just rushing my points because there's a clock. This thing called a time. Anyway, honor and immoral- immortality. There we go again. God's approval and God's reward. That's what he's talking about. Eternal life expresses not only a duration of time, but the quality of that time. Eternal life is not said, we're just going to live forever. You're still going to have debt, and you're still going to have you get your hair cut, and your fingernails are going to still be having need clipping. That's not the eternal life Christ is offering. He's saying, this is going to be a hoot, and you want to be there. And I've put so much into this to get people into heaven who scoff at me, who mock me, who turn on me, who delay it. I tell you, knowing what I know now, if I was an unbeliever and someone said, you have a chance to be right with Christ, I would be running up to take, what must I do to be saved? Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteous, unrighteousness, and then there's that pause, here's the answer, indignation and wrath. Well, what's Christ supposed to do? Give him a Cadillac? Uh, you, you just, just stop, let's not make a mockery of a righteous and pure God. He's not going to wink at sin. He's not going to trivialize it. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Well, he, he's laying out the consequences. Of course, I can take another hour on all this. He names the Jew first because the, the light came to them first as a people. But he doesn't want to make the unbelievers, the Gentiles, feel left out. So them too. What difference does it make if it's a split second between the judgment? It's going to be. However, verse 10, the good news. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who, walk, who, who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul is keeping in front of them. There's a behavior expected of you as a Christian. Don't for a moment think a mere confession of faith is sufficient to live the life of faith. Uh, you know, the thief on the cross, he got away with, you know, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Act out those things. And the Lord looked at him and said, good, you're not a doofus, but the other guy. Anyway, he did not do that. But it comes out that way. So, back to verse 10, where he says, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Emphatic to the Jew first, here two times. Jesus said to the woman, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And that statement wiped out every other religion on earth. 
That statement says you either come through Christ or, or I'm not going to accept that religion, which we'll get into next session, remembering that God is just in his judgments and he's going to let us see that. You won't have to say, well, he's just and you just got to live with it. God says, I'm just and I'm going to point it out to you. Uh, so anyway, verse 11 now, for there is no partiality with God. Well, as I've been mentioning, many Jews were elevating their ethnicity over obedience. And there are Christians that do the same thing. They elevate their supposed confession of faith above obedience. Obedience is a real thing. Ethnicity never damned any soul. There'll be no one in hell, well, you're only here because, you know, you're Irish, or you're only here because you're Polish, or you're... There'll be none of that. If you're in hell, it's because you would not side with God. That's the only reason why. Now, that has a lot of little areas in it that need to be addressed, but no one's going to be blocked out of hell because of racism. Uh, that's, racism is something Satan has, has manufactured. So I want to close with this. 2 Timothy 2. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, what is repulsive about any of that? What is unfair about any of that? Absolutely nothing. I see that you all have gone over a few minutes than what you were supposed to, but you'll work on it. Let's pray. Our Father, it, the, it, just the scripture is so loaded with everything that is right. And in a world of sin, everything that is wrong will challenge it. And yet, we know that the righteous prevail. When all is said, when all is done, the righteous will stand in glory, bright, shining like the sun. Because of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, who teaches us about you, who brings us to you, through a God who is holy and just, pure and all-knowing. We who believe, we worship you. We detest our own sin. And we want to be used by you and not abusive to others. We are, we are totally dependent on your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, to help us be able to do these things. If you're listening and you've not given your life to Christ, get out of that category of the camp of the doomed. You're not promised another chance. You've got to make the step. Stop being afraid. You know the deal. Instead of supposing it to somehow be an act of weakness, see it for what it is. An act of strength that defies a powerful devil, a sinful flesh, and an insane world. You stand up to Christ. That's the sermon you preach. I defy you, not God. I defy Satan. I defy sin. And I come to him. You'd like to receive Christ in your heart right now. Then make this prayer with me and act on it. Get busy. There's work to do. So that the next time the believers pray for lost souls. They're rejoicing about your, your conversion. And they've turned their attention to other lost souls. And then you could be part of the same process. If you'd like to give your life to Christ and make this prayer with me. And mean it. 
Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. I've been against your way. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else that I can go to. There's no one else as pure or powerful. There's no one else who is the only begotten Son of God who died to take my judgment away. I give my life to you right here and right now, and I ask from this day forward that you would be not only the one who saves my soul from judgment to come, but the one who rules over my life as Lord right now. I ask that you give me courage to stand up and make it clear that I've given my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, whether in the church or online, may they back it up. May their first step be a confession of faith in your house or to one of, one of your people. In Jesus' name, we commit these things in your hands, to your hands. Amen.